Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live. On WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with a, a new piece by Missy Mazzoli. Missy's a very gifted young composer who's living and working in New York City. She's a, about 30 years old, I think. And uh, the Albany Symphony had opened our season two years ago uh, with a new work of hers, uh, a work called... These Worlds in Us. It was a very touching and beautiful work that I think really impressed our audience. And so since the Albany now has a grant from the Mellon Foundation to have what's called a composer-educator partner, a mid-career composer who comes to Albany for a year and works with the orchestra, has pieces played and commissioned by the orchestra, and also does a very in-depth project with an area school district, uh, we invited Missy to come be our composer-educator this very year. So uh, we played this piece early in the season. On our final concert of the season, we'll premiere a brand new orchestral work in May. And in addition, Missy's doing a very ambitious and exciting arts and education program, co-composing with a group of students at the middle school, Doyle Middle School in Troy, New York. And that project will be performed actually in the Troy Savings Bank Music Hall as part of our festival. Uh, But this work is a, a relatively new work by Missy. It's called Violent, Violent Sea. And actually, it doesn't sound quite as violent as the title may suggest. Uh, the work was written actually in a, a much smaller form. I shouldn't say smaller in length, but for a smaller ensemble. Uh, it was premiered in New York City by a, a sort of small chamber orchestra. But when Missy got the call from us, she was so excited because she had always dreamt of this piece as a big, full orchestra piece. As you'll hear, it has sumptuous uh, orchestration, very thick, rich, dense, churning kinds of orchestral color that sort of suggests the sea. And so she was delighted to experience expanded into a full orchestra piece of which we give the premiere on this concert. Missy talks about this piece as being what she calls an immersion piece. The textures don't change in terms of uh, density through the piece. In fact, the the, the general texture is, is pretty dense throughout, but there is this incredible sense of churning and a variety within this kind of steady state overarching texture. Uh, and so this was this idea of the sea. Uh, you'll notice at the very beginning that there are really two kinds of music, that there's this, this sort of percussion-based music with with the marimba and the uh, vibraphone and the different percussion, sort of bell-like percussion instruments, as well as the celesta, which is a keyboard instrument that is really a a keyboard glockenspiel. So lots of shimmery, fast-moving colors. And at the same time, most of the orchestra, particularly the strings, plays very sustained, slow-moving harmonies that change very gradually. And and this is really the premise of the piece. Throughout the piece, there's always this big, slow-moving, churning kind of music and this much more surface but very exciting and and lively kind of texture which is first in the percussion and the celesta and then is given over to the strings. The violins begin to take that same material. There's a uh, some very beautiful thematic material that kind of bursts out. But again, it is this idea that, that Missy really wanted to achieve of sort of dropping you, dare I say, into the ocean and having you experience that feeling of it for a, a solid 10 minutes. So here now, really the world premiere of the full orchestra version of Missy Mazzoli's new piece, 
Violent, Violent Sea. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony. It's conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes Podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Missy Mazzoli's Violent, Violent Sea in its orchestral premiere with the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. I should probably just say an additional word of sort of background about, about Missy. Uh, Missy has uh, had her her first big orchestra piece, These Worlds and Us, played by orchestras really around the country. Uh, but she's also had a very active life, uh, having written all sorts of smaller ensemble pieces that are played really all over. She's really a, a very impressive, coming young composer. In addition, she's formed her own dare I say, new music rock band that plays her own music, exclusively her own music. It's called Victoire, and I'm delighted to say that it will be featured on our May American Music Festival along with a new premiere by Missy and this arts and education program that she's working on with the Troy City School District. So very exciting chance for us to meet and work with very closely and help develop the gifts of a a wonderful young composer, Missy Mazzoli. Next on the program, not one but two concertos. First, an almost brand new harp concerto by the legendary John Williams, he of movie legendary super, super fame. John Williams also has a very active and busy life as a concert music composer. His concert music is not nearly as well known as his film music, of course, but uh, he has written a great number of orchestral pieces, principally concertos for artists he really loves and is close to, people like Yo-Yo Ma and Gil Shaham. And uh, it happened that, I guess in 2008, Anne Hobson Pilot, the incredible harpist of the Boston Symphony, very elegant, uh, wonderful lady, approached John Williams and asked him whether he'd consider writing a harp concerto, and and he very politely demurred, even though I gather they're very close friends, saying that writing a harp concerto is the hardest thing in the world. First, a composer has to understand the harp, which is quite a singular instrument with its very complicated pedal techniques and and all sorts of other techniques as well. And secondly, because the, the fact that the harp generally plays so quietly creates enormous balance challenges in terms of making sure that the harp isn't overwhelmed or subsumed by the orchestra. But a year later, Ms. Hobson Pilot announced her retirement from the Boston Symphony after 40 years as the principal harpist of that orchestra. And I think the orchestra at that point approached Mr. Williams because they asked Ms. Hobson Pilot whether she would like a work commissioned in her honor. And she mentioned this this, uh, uh, Williams harp concerto idea she had had. And the orchestra went to him and, and John very graciously agreed to write a harp concerto. And he's written a very beautiful and very evocative harp concerto for her. It was premiered by the Boston Symphony in 2009, the year that Ms. Hobson Pilot retired. And we're delighted and honored to have her appear with the Albany Symphony. Uh, it's a great puzzlement to us why she retired. She's at the absolute pinnacle of her achievement, an incredible virtuoso, a very elegant and refined musician, as well as a great teacher. I think she teaches at the New England Conservatory and at Boston University and various other places. So a very active, lively person uh, with lots going on. And I think just maybe after 40 years in the Boston Symphony, decided to try some other challenges. So this work, John Williams' Harp Concerto, is, uh, is in two movements. It's actually not called Harp Concerto. It's called On Willows and Birches. And uh, Mr. Williams had, had described in a in a program note that the first movement on willows uh, was inspired by a, a line in the uh, in the biblical psalm 137 i think the line is we hanged our harps upon the willows uh, and he he thought that was just a fascinating image of of these harps hanging on the willow trees and blowing in the wind almost like like wind chimes like wind harps and so he's written an extremely spare sparse a uh, very minimal not minimalist but minimal kind of music where the 
harp is obviously the featured instrument, but but the orchestra comments very delicately on the harp lines, whether it be the percussion sort of making wind chime-like music at the beginning or the solo strings just underlining her lines with little dabs of of long notes to sort of sustain notes that are important in the harmony or, or the winds commenting ever so gently. But it's an extremely sparse and spare movement and very beautiful. It's followed by a rather contrasting and not surprisingly second movement, the movement on birches. And this one is inspired by, uh, by Robert Frost's poem. Uh, John Williams mentioned that he, he remembers in his mind a picture of a little boy swinging on the birch branches in the poem. And so this idea of, of swingers and their multifaceted meanings of a sort of swinging, lively, very rhythmical kind of music to contrast with the willow movement, with the first movement, is a, a wonderful contrasting idea. So the second movement, very motoric, lots of what we call mixed meter, different meters, not just a steady pulse, but lots of different pulses, leading to an enormous solo harp cadenza, which you'll hear two-thirds of the way through. The orchestra stops, and the harp really engages in this two-and-a-half-minute-long virtuosic tour de force, and that's followed by a brief closing in which the orchestra rejoins the soloist uh, to bring the piece to its conclusion. So here now, John Williams' harp concerto on willows and birches, played by the dedicatee of this piece, uh, Miss Anne Hobson Pilot, the longtime principal harpist of the Boston Symphony, uh, along with the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHTFM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was John Williams' work for harp and orchestra on Willows and Birches, featuring Anne Hobson Pilot and the Albany Symphony. As if that weren't enough for an exciting first half of an Albany symphony, there's one more work which closes the first half, uh, a rather contrasting work and a work that I've always wanted to do and never uh, figured out how to program or where to program. So I thought this was a perfect time to sort of do a spiky, exciting, daringly modern piece next to a very lovely, gentle work, John John Williams's piece. So to close our first half, we feature the Igor Stravinsky Concerto for Piano and Wind Instruments. It's a work from 1923, premiered in 1924 with the great Serge Kusevitsky conducting the orchestra and uh, Stravinsky himself as pianist. And uh, it is a remarkably daring, modern-sounding piece, especially given that it's just about 90 years old. The backstory of this piece is, of course, Stravinsky was already uh, established as certainly the most important and exciting young composer in the orchestral music world because in the, the 1910s he had had that triumvirate of gigantic balletic successes, first with The Firebird, uh, then with Petrushka, and finally with The Rite of Spring. Those three works, obviously choreographed by the great ballet impresario Serge Diaghilev, established Stravinsky as this enfant terrible and as this incredible master of the orchestra. So by the 1920s, after the the war, after the First World War, when everybody was having financial troubles, Stravinsky was a very well-established composer, and yet he was as everyone was, I guess, having a little trouble making ends meet. So his good friend Serge Kusevitsky suggested to him, knowing that he was a very impressive pianist, uh, why not write a concerto that you hold the rights to so that only you can perform it? So if people, if orchestras, if communities want to hear this piece, they have to hire you as the piano soloist. Uh, Stravinsky kind of liked the idea, although he hadn't really performed in front of large publics as a pianist. And so he took Kusevitsky's advice and fashioned this this concerto, which was really uh, geared to his his pianistic gifts. He, he had written one big piano piece before this. It was really a, a transcription of, of three pieces from Petrushka. It was a commission from Arthur Rubinstein. And it is, by all reports, an almost 
unplayable piece. It's so wildly virtuosic. So it's a real high watermark of virtuosic early 20th century piano technique and something that Stravinsky really didn't himself feel up to as a pianist. This piece is pianistically a little bit more modest. It's not quite as dauntingly difficult, but it's extremely difficult in in other ways and extremely challenging. So Stravinsky played the premiere and then played about 50 performances during the 1920s and did receive a great deal of income as a result of being the the lone pianist and then eventually allowed other pianists to start playing it. And it's had a, a very interesting history. It comes from this period uh, of Stravinsky's life when he was exploring what's now called neoclassicism, although I think it's a little bit of a misnomer because his, the world he was exploring was really much more the Baroque world, the pre-classical world. So I think perhaps this period in Stravinsky's development should be called the neo-Baroque period. Uh, and Stravinsky, whenever I read about or think about Stravinsky or study his music, he, uh, another artist always comes to mind for me, and, and that is the painter Pablo Picasso. Because I think the two figures, Stravinsky and Picasso, obviously each in very different disciplines, but they, they occupied a very similar space in their respective disciplines in that every 10 years or so, it's almost like they reinvented themselves. Uh, in the case of Picasso, whether it was dis- discovering or, or rediscovering uh, cubism or his blue period or extremely abstract painting, he was forever uh, creating a new Picasso and yet invariably the, the fingerprint of, of the original Picasso came through. So one is never in doubt about a Picasso painting. It always looks and feels like a Picasso painting no matter what period of his own evolution he may be in. Stravinsky musically is very much the same way. He started out as a sumptuous ballet composer and then became sort of more and more ascetic and objectivist in a way as he went to the very end of his life. At the very end of his life, he he actually started writing sort of serialist music uh, inspired by the example of Arnold Schoenberg, someone who at the beginning of his career, he really had no interest in. So forever going through metamorphoses and becoming a very different kind of composer and yet always staying very much himself. So in this period, after those sumptuous ballets in the 1920s, uh, Stravinsky really took a turn away from, from romanticism, sort of eschewing all the ideas of this lush, rich, subjective, passionate, emotive kind of music, musical world in which certainly being a, a Russian, uh, he had been brought up in. So, uh, and in, in going away from that and turning away from that, he, he sort of looked back to this pre-classical era, to the Baroque period of, of Handel and Bach, and particularly composers like Vivaldi and Scarlatti, and writes this kind of music during this period that is rather detached and, and objectivist, as if you're looking at art, not as if you're in the art. And yet it's extremely beautiful, and, and it's a fascinating sort of modernization of, of aesthetics that existed, you know, three, four hundred years before he, he wrote his own works. Some of the great uh, works of this period, I suppose, uh, which stretches really into the 1930s and, and maybe even to the 40s, uh, works like Pulcinella, which is a great piece, or like uh, the Symphony in Three Movements or the Symphony in C, the Octet. Uh, this work from uh, 1923, the Concerto for Piano and Winds, sits squarely in the middle of this period. And, and it still sounds kind of like an odd modern piece, even though it, its antecedents are really Scarlatti and, and Handel. The work is in three movements, a standard three-movement concerto form. And yet, of course, obviously, it's an unusual concerto in that it uh, only features the piano and wind orchestra, no strings except the double basses who join in and, and actually add a wonderful color to the piece. So it's got a, a kind of a bright, angular tone world to it by, uh, by virtue of the absence of the warmth of the string instruments. And the work begins with a beautiful sort of slow 
you might call it a, a chorale, or I even think of a cortege. It, it owes itself very much to the sort of French Baroque, uh, slow promenade style that you hear in, in Scarlatti sonatas, or that you sometimes hear in a Bach French suite. Uh, and the orchestra plays that without without the piano for the first two, two and a half minutes or so. Then the piano enters with the fast music, and it's a very lively, very exciting, very uh, wild ride, because Stravinsky at this period was so fascinated by, by this idea of mixing meters, of extremely complicated metrical Constructions where you never are quite aware of where the next downbeat, where the next strong pulse is going to fall. And I must say, at the end of this piece, there's a sort of brief, in this first moment, there's a brief cadenza where the orchestra stops playing and, and the piano does a very complicated thing by itself. And the orchestra has to come back in and go bop. And I must say, that's the hardest thing for the conductor in, in the piece and one of the hardest things in, in all of Stravinsky. I think we did it pretty well in this in this performance. Uh, anyway, the first movement is just kind of a, a lively, uh, exciting romp once you're past the slow introduction. The slow introduction returns at the end. Then the second movement is as relaxed and refined and and slow, beautiful as the first movement is lively. It's a, a beautiful kind of Baroque style arioso uh, that unfolds extremely slowly and, and again sounds... Uh, in its kind of fractured way, very much like like the Baroque concertos of Bach or of Handel. And then the third movement, kind of a return to the ideas or to the emotional world of the first movement. Very lively, exciting movement, but with a wonderful sort of march idea that, that sort of emerges from the orchestra in the middle of the of the movement and brings us to a kind of triumphant close. Stravinsky really was, was all about in this period eschewing emotion in music. He felt that music should sit there like an object and you should have your emotional response. The music shouldn't try sort of Tchaikovsky style to, to inspire in you certain emotions. And so there is this one Wonderful, strange, absolutely uniquely Stravinskyan detachment to it, which I think he equated with Baroque objective kinds of aesthetic ideas. So now Stravinsky's uh, Concerto for Piano and Winds. It features a remarkable young pianist who's been with the Albany Symphony once before, Orion Weiss, one of my favorite young pianists, a former student of Immanuel Axe, another great American pianist, and a very multifaceted pianist. He plays beautiful Mozart and, and Brahms and Beethoven, but he can also play the living stuffing out of this very different and very daunting Stravinsky Concerto. Uh, Again, the Stravinsky Concerto for Piano and Winds, Orion Weiss is the soloist. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The second half of our program featured one monumental work, and I, I love the way that the Stravinsky Concerto sort of reaches across the intermission uh, to share this intensely rhythmical world with this most rhythmical of all the great classical symphonies. This is Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. It is as everyone knows, a, a, a huge barn-burning tour de force, a real crowd-pleaser. And it was written at the end of what is is considered Beethoven's, quote, heroic period, the period that gave us the Eroica Symphony, the Fifth Symphony, the, the Emperor Piano Concerto. Uh, it's a period that went roughly from about 1800 or 1802 until really the time of this piece, 1813, when Beethoven was absolutely in the epicenter of his, his first maturity, writing one unbelievable masterpiece after another, but very much caught up in this idea of heroism and of the composer, the creator as as a dramatic force. This piece is 
really, I think, unique in, in the world of orchestral music. It's absolutely pure orchestra music. Uh, there is no, no story that goes along with it, no, no, no context per se. It's in the traditional four movements, and yet it's got incredibly unconventional aspects to it. The first movement has, I think, the longest introduction of any Beethoven symphony, a very big, dramatic introductory statement that goes on for quite some time, and then leads in through a very humorous transition of the the woodwinds doing boom and the strings answering boom boom that incredibly funny and delicate little transition from very one kind of music into a very different other kind of music the body of the of the main part of the of the first movement and the first movement, of course, is this incredible dance movement with this this unrelenting rhythm of yum pa dum pum pa dum pum pa dum pum pa dum, which will return, of course, in the ninth symphony in the in the scherzo. Uh, and he builds an amazing architectural masterpiece with this one absolutely unrelenting rhythm. Second movement is the movement that I think is is most thought about and talked about and and debated and discussed. Uh, it's often referred to as a funeral march, although Beethoven didn't say that that was per se what it was. But it's that slow, stately bum. Bum, 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 and has that gorgeous counter melody that which you'll hear in the the violas and the cellos at first, and then is passed around the orchestra. This is a movement that was was absolutely a, a huge hit in Beethoven's time. In fact, it was so popular that when the Eighth Symphony, the companion piece to the the Seventh Symphony, came out, very often performers, conductors, and orchestras would replace the second movement of the Eighth Symphony, which is a very funny little, almost slow scherzo, a little a little humorous movement, uh, the clock movement, with this very dramatic slow movement from the Seventh Symphony, which, of course, is in the wrong key entirely and makes no sense in the Eighth Symphony. But it was such a dramatic statement, and people were so taken by it that it really became sort of a a top 40 thing, even in Beethoven's own lifetime. The work is often, the second movement is often played painfully slowly. I must say just a a word about about tempo in the piece, uh, throughout the piece, in all four movements. As you perhaps know, there's been a a very exciting movement in the last really 30 or 40 years, sometimes called the authentic instrument movement, the authentic performance practice movement, the original instruments movement. But anyway, it's been uh, driven by a lot of performing uh, musicians and conductors, scholars, who really felt that it's very useful to go back and study how these pieces probably were played, how the instruments worked in Beethoven or Mozart or Bach's times. And great amounts of research have gone into sort of trying to figure out, one can never know for sure, of course, but how these pieces would have been approached in Beethoven's time. And there's been incredible scholarship that's gone on to really reestablish, you know, how these pieces probably were approached and how dramatically differently they were approached from the way they were approached during the 20th century. So growing up, I, like probably many of, of you listeners, had lots of different performances of the Beethoven symphonies that I listened to, whether be Bruno Walter or Otto Klemperer, uh, invariably they were unbelievably slow, lugubrious Wagnerian statements. And frankly, they're Wagnerian because it was Wagner who first decided to entirely disregard all of the metronome marks that Beethoven very meticulously marked in his symphonies and, and to, just write, to just play them sort of in, in Wagner's own image. So Wagner took them all as gigantic, romantic, dramatic statements and slowed them all down by about 50%, completely ignoring Beethoven's tempo indications. And that's really the, the beginning of this sort of heroic approach approach to Beethoven interpretation, when you think of almost all the great conductors of the 20th century, with the exception of one, uh, they all played this music at terribly slow tempos. The only exception, of course, was Toscanini, who actually frequently came close to Beethoven's metronome marks. But in the last 
20 or 30 years, a number of conductors and performers have come forward with much more authentic performances of Beethoven, which not only sometimes even use uh, instruments that would have been current at the time Beethoven wrote these pieces, but really attending to all the indications, particularly the metronome indications. So conductors like Roger Norrington or Christopher Hogwood or John Elliott Gardner have really been a wonderful corrective to all of this terrible, lugubrious, lethargic Beethoven interpretation. And, and so you'll notice immediately when you hear this piece, particularly the second movement of the Beethoven, that the Albany Symphony and I take rather brisk and bracing tempi in in, uh, most of this piece. And I just want to assure all the listeners that, in fact, all I'm doing is observing the, the metronome marks, the speeds that Beethoven himself indicates in the score. So you're hearing Beethoven, hopefully, I hope, pretty much as he intended it. Anyway, so the second movement is this wonderfully unfolding kind of slow, stately march with a, a lovely contrasting second theme played by the clarinet, very much more filled with repose. The third movement is a rollicking scherzo, a, a sort of funny, lively third movement that uh, really plays around a great deal with dynamic shifts. Loud, soft, very different contrasting trio idea. That's one of those places where we take it at tempo, and most conductors of the past hundred years did not. They took it at about half tempo, thus either making it necessary for the conductor to cut half of the scherzo out, because there are a number of repetitions, as you'll hear, or to uh, make the scherzo unbelievably endlessly long. It's endlessly long even at tempo in that there are really three iterations of both the scherzo and the trio. By the third time, Beethoven knows that you're thinking, oh my gosh, how many more iterations are we going to have? And then he, of course, surprises us with a rather quick, abrupt ending. And the finale is essentially the, the maddest of all the movements in this piece. I really believe that Beethoven wanted to create this kind of crazy abandon in his music. You know, This is where, even though he was working in the same aesthetic framework as Mozart and Haydn, to composers whose music he knew and whom he knew somewhat personally. He knew Haydn quite well. He'd been a student of his, and he met Mozart, I think, only once or perhaps twice. But already at that time, Mozart was ill, and Beethoven was still a very young man. Uh, but, but Beethoven really lived and worked in the classical aesthetic world of those masters. And yet here Beethoven is just, dare I say, like the talking heads, just really burning down the house. In this last movement, he gets so obsessed with this one rhythmic idea. And that idea of just almost doesn't go away for a full, I don't know, eight minutes perhaps, till you want to sort of tear your hair out and run screaming from the hall, either in excitement or in frustration. I can't, I'm not sure. It, it's in a certain way like that insistent theme of the Fifth Symphony, the first movement, ba 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 bum da 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 dum, that permeates the entire fabric. But in a way, this one is even more obsessive because it's as if he grinds it and grinds it until finally there's nothing left to be done with this idea. It's a thrilling piece of music, an amazing piece of music, and yet, and yet when you think of it in the context of, of Haydn and Mozart's music, it really is quite revolutionary and quite daring and quite sort of off the chart of weirdness in that Beethoven is going to a place where no other composer had ever dared to go in all of music history before him. So here now, that epic work of rhythmic vitality played at Beethoven's Tempe by the Albany Symphony, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. The conductor is me, David Allen Miller. The new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. 
David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live on WMHT-FM, your classical companion.